Hello, friends and fellow sports killjoys. Welcome to episode number six of the End of Sport podcast. My name is Nathan Coleman Lamb, and I'm joined by my co-host, Derek Silva. We are so excited today to be speaking with former professional women's hockey player, goaltender Liz Knox. Uh, and we have what I think is a really terrific interview with Liz today. So can't wait to get to that. But before we do, just a couple of things I want to cover. First, as always, please follow the show if you don't on Twitter at End of Sport Pod. Instagram is the same at End of Sport Pod. Um, rate the show if you wouldn't mind. Subscribe. Uh, pass it on by word of mouth. We just love for people to um, to get the sense that the show is out there because I think that we've uh, this is not to toot our own horns. To be quite frank, we've been privileged to have um, some wonderful guests, and they have had incredible things to say. And I want the world to hear those things. So I'd love for you to pass it on. Um, and just to give you a sense, if this is your first time listening. Last week, we had uh, two interviews I, I absolutely loved. One was with Regent at the University of Minnesota, Michael Shu, who talked us through exploitation in college sports from the position of the very top of the administration. That was the most wild interview I've ever heard. <laughs> Having a Regent come on and, and basically say that collegiate athletes should unionize, that's some, that's some heavy hitting stuff. That was okay. Yeah, we like that. Then later the same week, we had the great Jules Boykoff, uh, preeminent political theorist of the Olympics and critic of the Olympics, which is what I like, um, just absolutely dissect everything you'd need to know about how the Olympics works and why we should object strenuously um, to that particular enterprise. And also to pull back the curtain a little bit on his work as an activist, uh, a public intellectual, and even as a former professional athlete. So that was a ton of fun. And then earlier this week, that was also one of like the greatest interviews ever. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't disagree. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then on Monday this week, I had the great pleasure of sitting down with uh, Christine Baker-Smith, who talked us through some really horrifying elements of the world of higher education in the United States and college sport, namely um, food and, and housing insecurity for uh, college students in general and college athletes. And I think that's something that we, we almost never hear about or talk about when it comes to the sort of issues around exploitation and college sports, but it's a necessary piece in the puzzle. And I think it's only going to get worse as the conditions in higher education are worsened by this pandemic. So I strongly encourage everyone to check out those great interviews because those folks had some terrific things to say. Like, share, subscribe, all those things. I'm excited to get back at it, Derek. Like last week we had, we had four interviews in five days and then we went like five days without talking and like I'm ready to get back at it. Me too. I was like thinking about this morning. I'm like, I really just want to get back in front of a mic again. I know it's a, it's a new world for us, but like <laughs> we're, we're hooked apparently. Um, and the truth is, I got to say, we started doing this in part because, you know, you hear athletes interviewed all the time in the media. And quite frankly, it's like the worst genre of soundbite that exists, I think. Is that safe to say, Derek? Oh, just gonna, you got, we just got to really work, work together as a team, give it 110%. You know, everyone, everyone's working towards the same goal. Exactly. Exactly. Rinse, repeat. Exactly. So, I mean, what we wanted to do with this podcast is to have conversations with athletic workers that were a little bit different. 
to ask them honest questions about what it feels like to work in sport and what the toll is for them and to give them um, a fair hearing about their actual experiences. And today we finally have that opportunity, my friend. I'm super, super excited to actually talk to an athlete, which was, like you said, the kind of MO, the, the way we kind of talked about this in the first place was to get um, some athletes on. So it's amazing to have Liz on the show today because uh, there's no better way to kick this off. Couldn't agree more. So with that said, I hope you enjoy. Liz Knox is a retired professional hockey goaltender, CWHL Clarkson Cup champion, CIS Broderick Trophy winner, CWHL All-Star captain, and former co-chair of the CWHLPA. She is also one of nine players on the board of the PWHPA. Liz Knox, it is a great pleasure to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It's my pleasure to be here. So there's so much for us to get into, but before we do, Gotta ask, how are you coping with this pandemic in Stouffville, Ontario? Um, you know, life here is um, actually quite busy. Um, I'll, I'll get into my day job a little bit later, I'm sure, but um, I work as a volunteer firefighter as well. So um, putting in lots of hours, but um, you know what? Everyone's safe and healthy, and that's the most important thing. Well, I'm really happy to hear that. Um, so you know, that's obviously for everyone the most important thing these days. So, as I sort of said, we have tons that we want to talk to you about today. Um, we could not be more excited to be speaking to an athlete. We're talking about athletic labor all the time, and now we get to talk to someone who did it. Um, so before we plunge into the nitty gritty, the details of what that experience is like, I think it's really worth starting with a bit of a, a contextual picture for listeners who may be unfamiliar with the particular terrain of your athletic experiences. Can you walk us through the landscape of women's professional hockey? Because quite frankly, it's really complicated. What yeah. does it end? Okay, so just just so viewers, so for listeners, even have some of the acronyms here. Because I started with a ton of acronyms. I know. <laughs> um, what is the NWHL? What was the CWHL? And what happened to it? Let's start there. Okay. Uh, yeah, you're very right. The uh, landscape of women's hockey is uh, a confusing one to navigate for people in the game. So people outside of the game are, you know, I'm sure equally, if not more, confused. Um, so I'll start kind of in reverse order. Um, the CWHL was the original, um, professional league or post-collegiate league that we had here in Canada and we had teams in the States and eventually we grew, we had teams in China as well. Um, the CWHL was about 12 years old before it folded. And before that it was actually previously named the NWHL, the national women's hockey league. Um, that was privately owned when that league kind of fell apart the Canadian Women's Hockey League, the CWHL, was formed. So that was about 12 years ago, as I say. Now, in uh, about five or six years ago, I think they're going to their sixth season this year, another NWHL was started. This was not an affiliation of the previous NWHL. Um, this iteration was at the States. Um, again, it was privately um, operated and owned. Um, we saw a lot of the CWHL players leave our league at that point. Uh, to play NWHL hockey. Most of them had their salaries cut. We'll get into that, those details a little bit later, but there was some, um, you know, 
kind of turbulence there. So a lot of those players ended up coming back to the CWHL. And then, as you said, or alluded to, um, the CWHL did fold around this time last year, actually, um, which is when we formed the PWHPA, which stands for the Professional Women's Hockey Players Association. Um, And that basically is just the players kind of aligning and trying to figure out how we build a sustainable future because of the brief history that I just gave you. Can you speak a little bit more about the PWHPA and the hashtag for the game movement? Um, Kind of looking at what you're sort of trying to accomplish with that, um, how many people are involved, those types of uh, questions. Yeah, so we have about 175 athletes um, in our organization. Um, Athletes can be actively playing members or supporting members, such as myself. Um, We represent the best talent in North America, so all of our Olympic athletes Um, for the Canadian national team and a lot of the American national team players as well. Um, You know, world champion athletes, uh, elite caliber division one, elite caliber youth sport athletes. Um, And we're basically, you know, a collection of players that, you know, have kind of come together just understanding that what we, what the general population would understand as professional is something that we have never seen in women's hockey. Um, And that's not talking million dollar contracts. That's just talking um, in how we're treated, the facilities that we play in, uh, the resources that are available to us in terms of, you know, timing of ice, how much ice we're allotted, um, the equipment that we use, the officials that we're given. Um, It's really top down and it's, it's hard to get into the nitty gritty without it sounding like we are bashing previous iterations of what we've been calling pro hockey. But the reality is that the, the life that we've lived as athletes in at the collegiate level has far surpassed the life that we live um, post-collegiate. And these are, you know, a lot of these athletes are peaking, you know, in their final years of college. So they're really just kind of hitting their stride. Um, the product on the ice is there, but we just haven't felt the treatment um, of our athletes has really been up to par of what, what it should be at this point the PWHPA kind of stems out of um, experiences with both the CWHL and the NWHL, correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And is it a, uh, so I think for our listeners, they might um, just want a little bit of a picture painted in terms of um, how the PWHPA operates. Um, so it's not a union, correct? Uh, yeah, it's, that's correct. It's um, So our, our members do, they did pay a due last year. This all came together very, very quickly um, and somewhat organically. When the CWHL folded last year, um, our players, our top talent players, were actually in Finland about to compete against each other at the World Championship. So um, for us to you know, collaborate at that time was very... Um, I think symbolic of the dire state that women's hockey players are in right now. Um, but yeah, basically we've come together. We do have a board of, of members, which I'm one of the nine members. Um, we have a lead consultant in Jaina Hefford, who's obviously a decorated athlete, a hockey hall of famer. Um, and we are under the ad- advisory of, uh, Billie Jean King Enterprises. We have the pro bono support of um, Ballard Spar legal team um, with a collection of other people who have, you know, really helped us in terms of sponsorship, um, marketing. Um, we're working on a, a PR angle. Um, and again, a, a lot of it, almost all of it actually is pro bono. So 
just people that are understanding our mission um, and, you know, doing what they can to try to help move our association forward. But to get back to your original question, no, we're not a union in the, um, you know, typical labor law, um, st- uh, you know, definition of the term, um, a collection of players, you know, a union of players, yes, but a union, no, <laughs> if that makes sense. It, it does. And and so <laughs> you said that the PWHPA draws on players from, of course, the CWHL, but also from the NWHL. Yeah. What is the relationship then to the, the NWHL today? Is there tension there? Uh, yes. I mean, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. There is tension. Um, you know, fortunately enough for me, I never played in the NWHL. So the stories that I hear of the treatment of their players is secondhand. Um, so I won't pretend to, you know, have experienced those myself, but the biggest thing is that these are experiences. Um, it's not athletes, you know, just running their mouth and, and trying to make other people look bad. It's the, it's their genuine lived experiences. And, um, you know, I think it's it's just at the point where they are top athletes in the world. Um, every four years, they get you know what they would consider what most people would consider professional treatment. And the three years in between, it's you know it's it, in some cases it's lower than what we experienced as as minor hockey players. So um, there are tensions because inherent in us trying to push for more and ask for more means that we have to tell our stories of just how bad it was when we played, um, like you say, for the CWHL or for the NWHL. But of course, with the NWHL existing, we're going to feel that pushback. Um, it's a lot easier for me to speak to my poor experiences in the CWHL because it no longer ex- exists. So I'm not, you know, I don't have to take names and I don't have to worry about um, anybody coming after me if I say something. But it is a little bit of a, a difficult, um, you know, terrain to navigate for for the former NWHL athletes. I think this is something we really don't hear enough about. Um, uh, Like the the actual sort of nuts and bolts of women's hockey um, as a site of labor. I'm just really curious. um, Maybe you could give us a little bit of a a peek into what a a day in the life of a player looks like. What are your working conditions? What are your wages or what were your wages um, in the CWHL and, and that sort of thing before we... Uh, move on to sort of a, a deeper dive into some of the the other yeah things. the so I'll give you a kind of a rundown of um, my life as an athlete um, we're practicing at you know 10 30 11 o'clock at night often um, most teams did not have their own dressing room so girls would be um, bringing their equipment from home there's no laundry facilities for them to do it they do it at, at home um, they're responsible for their jerseys and their socks we're not provided, you know, a lot of equipment. Um, I would say the average player would get one, maybe two sticks um, a season. Um, the Our helmets, gloves, and pants were provided to us, but we would have to return them at the end of the season. And often we're getting, um, you know, below top of the line models. So we're not in the most protective helmets that we should be in. And when you're talking about elite athletes and concussion protocols and this sort of thing, um, it, it it boggled my mind that we would even take that risk, but it was just what was available to us and what we could afford. Um, you know, meals on the road, things like that. We, we've paid for those. Um, we can't afford to relocate players. Um, to, you know, so you, you basically, you're commuting, your commute is um, at your own cost. Uh, we can't afford to relocate players if they get traded or, if, you know, 
if there's negotiations there, it's basically, you know, it's, it's like minor hockey. It's, you drive yourself to the rink, you pay for everything. Um, in my most successful season as a CWHL athlete, I made just under six grand. And that was including the bonus for making playoffs and for winning the Clarkson Cup, which were $500 a piece each. Does that, like, was that um, your total takeaway when you've also, like, subtracted all the costs? Or is it like you got paid $6,000, but you were still on the hook for all those expenses in terms of travel and meals? Oh, and God, no. Stuff? Yeah, no, that, that was just, like, the check that I got. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> and we have kids that, you know, live in Cambridge and are playing for Markham. Um, and, you know, they're taking the 407. You've got your gas bill, obviously wear and tear on your vehicles. And the the flip side of this is that the vast majority of us were also full-time workers outside of hockey. So for me, I'm a contractor. Um, I work in commercial renovations. So our day normally starts at, you know, 6.30 a.m. at our shop in Aurora. Um, yeah, I go to practice at 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. I get home typically around midnight. But then, I mean, you guys are athletes, obviously. And, you know, you you're like wired from your day and I'm falling asleep at one thirty, two o'clock in the morning and up at, you know, five o'clock the next day. And I think it's, I didn't really realize how much wear and tear I put on myself mentally and physically until I was actually retired. And now I'm like, I don't know how I ever did that, but you just do it because you love the game. And, um, you know, in our minds, it was better than than playing recreationally, which is our only other option. That's incredible. Um, yeah, I'm just frankly blown away listening. To be honest with you, like I'm wired. We're doing this. We're recording this podcast in the evening. I'm wired after recording a podcast. <laughs> forget about a forget about a hockey game. Um, and you know, like there were studies that come out. NBA players, for instance, I was reading about this last year. NBA players are obsessed with sleep now, right? Because they feel like sleep is a huge part of the regeneration necessary to um to maximize performance as an athlete and when you're telling us your schedule like sleep doesn't exist in that well, schedule and, you know it's kind of funny because um the the not the national team players that don't have full-time jobs that are funded by the government to be athletes i mean they still they still put in the work don't get me wrong they're still you know they're training but they're able to train for three or four hours a day you know they take their afternoon nap they have three meals a day of nutritious food they get eight to ten hours of sleep like when I was playing CWHL hockey, I was averaging, I would say, four or five hours of sleep a night. And then you tack on flying to Boston, flying to Calgary, um, flying to China. Like our China trip, oh like we, sh- we just shouldn't even get into that one because it was like, I mean, we spent 17 hours on a plane and within 10 hours of landing, we were already on the ice for our first game. Like it was, you're not setting these athletes up to succeed. And as a result, um, you know, you have the excuse of like, well, it's just not where we want it to be. Well, it's yeah, yeah because you haven't given them the resources to put the best product on the ice. The, the fact of the matter is we're lucky that those players put a product on the ice for as long as they did. Look, this is a bit of a digression, but actually I, I have to have you get into China because the China thing, <laughs> after everything you've said so far, the China thing is like mind blowing at this point. Where does China come into the picture? Maybe give us a little bit of context on how China, like we have a Canadian hockey league and then we have China and we have you traveling to China. How long are you there? Like you gotta tell us more about this experience. Yeah, China came in, uh, I guess, two years before the league folded. And my understand, actually this is why I joined the, 
the Players Association because it was a decision that was made without the players' consent. And um, at that point, you know, I was working full time. My teammates were working full time. And I get that for the outsider, it's like, whoa, what a great experience. You get to travel the world with your team and play hockey in a different country. And that part is cool. What's not cool is that girls had to quit jobs so they could go. Girls had to use their vacation time so they could go. Um, you know, you're risking your your health and your safety, um, you know, to, to travel and put yourself in these playing conditions that are that certainly not ideal for performance, let alone, like I say, your, your health and safety on the ice. So, yeah, it was, um, we were there for about, I think we were there for eight days. We weren't, yeah, we were there for just over a week. We played uh, three games in that time. Um, and that's including our travel. And I remember we got home on Saturday, Saturday morning, but it was like, I, I can't even, I can't even do the math right now of the conversion of what day it was to us. And I slept pretty much all day Sunday. And when I went to work on Monday morning, my boss actually sent me home because he was like, you, like, you do not look well right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> It was just, it was so much. Um, but yeah, like I said, that's why I joined the Players Association because at that point, I mean, how can you send your players the, to play in those conditions without some sort of representation to say, yes, this is this is okay or no, this is, you know, this is crossing the line a little bit. It, it sounds like all these experiences, um, well, you, you've said it pushed you into um, being part of the, the, the Players Association. Um, do you think, think that um all of these like well the china experiences and the the experiences with like being forced basically to go on um uh, uh what sounds like an exhausting um trip maybe not uh, an enjoyable and fun one but do you think that these experiences are the reason that you've been able to like build such momentum with solidarity and, and build this players association up absolutely i mean like when the CWHL folded, the, don't get me wrong. These are like locker room talks that we've had my entire career. And it was kind of like, it was, it was laughed at, right? It was like, oh, this is, this is the CW. Like, it's kind of a joke. Like, here we go again. Um, I remember in my first year, just to give you guys an example, I came from, I, I played at Wilfrid Laurier before I came to the CWHL. So I had the beautiful purple and yellow pads, right? I'm a goaltender. <laughs> And in my, you know, after our, after we did our tryouts, I was at my first practice and our GM came up to me and she says, you know, Noxie, we got to get rid of that purple. We got to get you into some better colors because we were red, black, and white at the time. So I said, okay. And I mean, I just came from a university that when they say that, you know, they're going to get you some new equipment. So I said, okay, great. And she said, I'll give you some forms. We've got to hook up with Vaughn. So pick your colors, pick your setup, and we'll, we'll get it ordered for you. Great. So I get my pads in a couple months later, and I, two weeks down the road, my GM comes to me and she says, well, here's your bill. And hand me a bill for like $3,200. Wow. And you and told us I, the salary you, you earned. You told us that, the salary. That year, I paid $1,500 to play. Oh, we didn't wow. make money back then. <sighs> So wow! Oh, you didn't make any money at all. So you're, no, you, no. It was pay to play entirely at that point. Exactly. At that point, it was. So I'm a kid fresh out of college. I'm folding pants at Lululemon for eleven dollars an hour, 
And I just got like a $3,000 bill. I was, I didn't know what to do, honestly. I, I mean, I had to go to my parents who, thank God, you know, helped me out. But these are the kinds of stories. And like I say, we always joked about it and, and we just laughed and we let it roll off our backs. But at the end of the day, we had conversations in the locker room of like, you know, what would happen if we just all said enough is enough? And it's unfortunate that the CWHL had to fold for us to kind of finally make this, this solid stance. Um, but there's so many stories that this, this foundation is built on. It's not just, you know, some privileged kids being like, well, we want to make millions of dollars. That's not what it is. It's, it's decades of mistreatment in my mind. Wow. Um, and okay. So I want to get, cause I think that the, the, certainly the logical extension of what you've just been saying is we, we got to talk about again, now this, this sort of labor action, this performance labor action that you're taking, but there's one more thing I do, I think we should get into since you've been giving us such, um, painting a beautiful picture, uh, well, actually a really ugly picture, but painting it beautifully, um, of what life is like, what it was like for you as a professional hockey player. Um, I want to know about health insurance. What barriers to health insurance and health care do women hockey players face and what risks do that pose? Because for me, as an academic, you know, my, my focus has really become the way in which, you know, injury is built into high performance sport. And actually often the site that I am looking at in my work um, are more well removed, far more well remunerated um, sites of that kind of sport, right where I still see it as a fundamental and completely unjust sacrifice, right? The demands being made on players' bodies, even when they do have kind of like the absolute best case scenarios when it comes to insurance. Or now I'm looking more these days at you know, uh, high revenue college sports in the United States, excuse me. And what I'll complain about there is the fact that, listen, there's good health insurance while they're playing at an NCAA school, right? Mm -hmm. But then when they leave, the insurance ends, right? So what about these long-term injuries, et cetera? But I have a sneaking suspicion that the situation is even worse in the context you live. Yeah. I mean, Again, like I'll I'll make a brief comparison to to my college days, and again, I I was a U sport athlete, so we certainly didn't have the um, resources that you see in the big NCAA Division One schools. But I mean, if I got hurt at practice, or I got hurt at the gym, or I got hurt in a game, we have you know our our medical staff, our team therapists, our physiotherapists that you just walk in, you get your treatment, you they set you on the road to recovery, you you're, you know, encouraged to take your time off and you, you know, progress through your injury stages that way. Um, the CWHL, I mean, when I played, we had one doctor for the league. So, um, and, and she was based out of Toronto. So her players got injured elsewhere. I mean, I don't even know what they did. Um, there's no preferential treatment. There's, I, I tore my MCL when, um, maybe my third, I can't remember what year it was. doesn't matter. But I tore my MCL. Um, we were in Montreal. We had just our therapists on staff. So it was basically, yep, it's MCL. We don't know what it is. Put some ice on it. You know, drive home the next day. Um, so sit on the bus. When I got home, I had to make an appointment, you know, on my own. Like there's no, there's no urgent, there's no sense of urgency. Um, and, you know, everything from, my physio, I paid for, um, my, my brace I paid for, and I could get reimbursed through our hockey Canada insurance. Um, but the longevity of the injury, which I think is kind of what you're alluding to is like, that's, that's on the athlete. That's not our problem. Wow. And by the way, just as a follow-up to that, 
What about in the, I mean, this, again, this is not your firsthand experience and, and we're not asking you to slag the NWHL here or anything like that. That's not actually why I'm asking this, but I'm just curious because, you know, I've talked about this before. Um, you folks are up in Canada right now, uh, where I often long to be. Um, I am down here in the United States where healthcare looks just a little bit different. Yeah. And I'm curious for that reason, about if you have any insight into like kind of what the experience of NWHL players might be with respect to healthcare. I mean, I have heard from from players who played NWHL previously that, um, you know, they struggled to find that they had to find their own health insurance. Um, the league would, would cover them, you know, on the ice, but they had to have their own private medical insurance. Um, again, like I'm Canadian, so I'm lucky that I don't really have to figure that stuff out in Ontario. We have, you know, our Ontario health insurance plan. So, um, I can go to any doctor and, and get seen, but, um, I, I do know that it was a struggle and a, a big, um, ask of the players that did join the PA that, um, the medical insurance situation in the States was not ideal. Um, I have heard since to be fair that they've, um, kind of tried to institute a, a workers like a WSIB, um, sort of situation in Canada. I don't know how that's going to work in Canada because I know that the CFL, uh, the Canadian football league is their athletes are not recognized under WSIB. Um, that was something they actually were lobbying for, I believe, last year at, uh, at Parliament at Queen's Park here in Toronto um, because their athletes don't fall under that kind of coverage. Um, so it's, it's a very, again, it's not really my, my field, but I know that obviously there have been big barriers for, for female athletes and for Canadian athletes at large. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, again, as a Canadian living in the United States, I, I hear that loud and clear. Um, and again, I, I am in a situation where I'm like sort of one of the lucky ones here where, where I supposedly have like some really this kind of Cadillac healthcare coverage. And as a Canadian, like U.S. Cadillac healthcare coverage from Duke University is ugly. It is ugly. It is like, it's so ugly that I don't go to the doctor, literally have not been to the doctor in four years in the United States because I live in terror of what that will look like, uh, what that will cost. Um, so just a little bit of perspective there. Yeah, but, and it's funny. I mean, one would. of the one of the things that like you know sometimes when people are joking about, well, what what does women's hockey need to do? And they say, well, why don't the women wear visors? And I'm like, find me a single female athlete that's ever had dental coverage, and I will start wearing a visor <laughs> for you. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant point. Absolutely. Um, okay, so here, so I want to steer back then to the kind of this big picture issue, what you folks have done, because it's really like, it's, it's hard for people to wrap their minds around because it's so innovative, right? It's like, you're actually doing something that hasn't been done. You're if, and, and please correct me by the way, at any stage, uh, if I got it wrong, but you are, um, so you're in a professional league or semi-professional league or whatever, a, a terribly underpaid, um, and brutal working conditions, professional league context, it folds. And then you're in this situation. Do we potentially try to join the NWHL, right? Which has the same model as the league you've just endured. And you've just been describing exactly why you already, as players, have been speaking about um, your deep and understandable dissatisfaction with the working conditions you were subjected to. So you have that choice, join the NWHL, or you can try something different. You can try to actually produce the working conditions that you believe, and you're right, you believe that you deserve. And so you start, if I have this right, this dream gap tour with the hashtag for the game, like you're doing this for the game to make the game better for women who deserve access to actual professional sport with the kind of conditions we might imagine a professional athlete would have, 
Okay, so um, Courtney Zito, uh, professor at um, Queen's University, who is a brilliant scholar of hockey, uh, hopefully she will be on this show not too far down the road, has written at length about, uh, about the kind of context of for the game, uh, women's professional hockey and all the struggles that you folks endure. And uh, she actually asked me when she was writing a piece for um, the great blog Hockey and Society, kind of like what, how to characterize what you folks are doing, right? Is this a boycott? Is this some other kind of labor action? And I made a claim. I, I mean, I answered her question, even though I, you know, I was trying to make sense of it myself. And I'm, I want to tell you what I said, because I'm curious what you make of it, okay? Um, so at the time I said, it does feel like a sort of strike in that the crux of the issue is to have some say over the means of production, right? And that's something that you were, and this is just me parenthetically here, that's something you were denied in the CWHL. You were describing how the, the decision to go to China wasn't your decision, right? Okay. So you're denied really any say in your working conditions over the means of production. So in that sense, the Dream Gap Tour then is a sort of manifestation of a radical desire to seize those means and control this commodity spectacle that you're producing. So in that way, this is sort of, to me, fundamentally a labor action beyond, to a certain extent, the logic of unionization and collective bargaining, because unionization and collective bargaining are an acknowledgement of the fact that the means of production are still controlled by what I would call like a capitalist class, right? Like there's the owners, the owners, let's say of a CWHL, they are still in charge. But yes, with a union, you have more power to push back, right? And to take labor actions that improve your working conditions, ideally. But this is different than that. Do you agree with that appraisal? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you, you really broke it down. Um, you really hit the nail on the head, honestly, because and the term boycott got tossed around in the beginning a lot. Um, and it was, if it was difficult for us to navigate because we wanted to make sure that it wasn't, it wasn't just us saying we're not going to play in the NWHL. It was us saying, you know, the state of our working conditions for the last 10 years has been so bleak that we would rather not play for the next however long it takes and create something sustainable for the future of our game then just go with what's easy and what's comfortable and you know continue to basically scrape by and and subject ourselves to the, these kinds of conditions so i think i think your point about um a, a, it being a labor action uh, is is spot on and it's it's one of those things like you can't how organically this came together um i think just speaks to where where we are in this timeline of the evolution of our sport and of our you know kind of recognition a of ourselves and b of society's recognition of us um it takes a lot of bravery and a lot of courage to stand up and say i'm not going to play it takes a lot of bravery to to have that come from you know somebody let's say who's been in the league for a, you know a number of years but it also takes a lot of bravery on the side of the olympians who um, are basically forfeiting their right to have regular competition um, so that the game will be better in the end. This sounds one, like this, this level of solidarity and this level of, of labor action. I think like Nathan was alluding to the fact that this was actually really super innovative. Um, and I would agree, actually, personally. I, I, I view um, a lot of these moves as things that like nobody else is even considering um, the first step is typically unionize and then create a collective agreement. Whereas you're completely fundamentally trying to 
create new conditions um, for yourselves. And you mentioned that you want to build um, a sustainable future for women's hockey, um, not um, sort of um, create uh, anything other than like a, 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 a new style of game or a new future for women's hockey. What would that actually look like? Yeah, I think just to kind of like backtrack a little bit, I mean, part of the solidarity of us, you know, knowing that we need to create this something is because we've seen iterations of the same thing over and over again. And as I said at the beginning, the, the original NWHL, the one that was started in Canada, was privately owned. And from my understanding, at least from, from the league, the CWHL founders, the NWHL kind of closed its original doors because they wanted to take a year and kind of evaluate their investments. So these are private owners. So you had a real like dichotomy of have and have nots in terms of the teams. Um, Jaina Hefford said that she played on a team that, you know, she lived with a billet and they had housing provided to them and, you know, travel and that sort of stuff was covered. So in a lot of ways, they were actually ahead of what we received in the CWHL. Then there was the have nots, the teams in the league that um, perhaps didn't have as much funding. So it really created, you know, this disparity between the teams. And I think that was kind of the point where they're like, let's reevaluate how we can better distribute our funding so that the league is more um, more equal, right? So I think, and maybe don't quote me on this, but I, I've heard that the original plan was to shut the doors on the original NWHL for just one year. Now, when the investors all pulled their money, I'm sure there was some panic that ensued because without investors' money, there is no league. And the CWHL was formed um, by, again, a collective of players, and they formed underneath um, a not-for-profit model. Um, what the NWHL of today is doing is very similar to the NWHL of the original iteration um, in that it's privately owned. It's, it's privately owned by you know, a handful of investors with a ton of money and a ton of heart that want to see women's hockey grow. And that is amazing. Those are like, you know, those are the people that in women's hockey we dreamed of because they're going to help us help us grow the game. The issue I think that the players at the PWHPA have is that at what point will that run out? Because it will. It just seems to be, you know, this is history repeating itself. And, um, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and, and expecting different results. So it's like, what we believe is that um, if we, you know, take this stand, the solidarity stand, and we reach to the people who have been there and done that and are successful at it, somebody, let's say, like the NHL, um, who have already built a sustainable league um, to ad advise us, um, mentor us, invest in us, then our chances of creating that sustainability are much higher than if we just go back and try something that we've already done again and again and again. And I think we've, you know, we've, we have, we're just in believing that because what we've seen um, in the WNBA and the NBA model. And did the NBA, you know, eat a lot of costs and are they still eating costs? Yes, of course they are. But the WNBA has also seen, you know, astronomical strides over the last, especially the last handful of years in terms of, you know, their broadcasting deals, their viewership, their fan base is growing. And now you're seeing supports from NBA players and celebrities where it's like, okay, now this is, be, this is legitimizing their work, right? And we just have, we're like, we are so far from that, um, you know, to be a standalone 
a women's semi-professional league. It's just, it, it wasn't even in the realm of possibility. What would you say is the sort of biggest barrier to, to kind of fulfilling this, this similar model to the WNBA and the, the NBA? Um, you know, the sociologist in me, I think is, um, like our biggest barrier is that we don't yet see female athletes as professional athletes. We don't, you know, we don't put them on the same playing field. We don't value them as much as we value men. And again, that's not to say that we want to make what the men make. Like that's, I, I understand, you know, supply and demand. I understand that they're generating billions of dollars of revenue and that's why they're a players, B teams, owners, all these employees make what they make. But I think that um, every four years, we're happy to throw on a Canada jersey or a USA jersey and watch the women's hockey final because, you know, the last Olympics, it was the most watched event. And we're happy to see, you know, the billions and millions of dollars that go into the Olympics. But we're also happy for the three years in between to just pretend that they don't exist. And I think until we're pushing the boundary as, as a hockey community, um, I think that, you know, we're really struggling to, to gain our ground there. And I think the other thing that's interesting with particularly, you know, the hockey community at large, but the NHL is, um, you know, the noticeable shift of them to uh, make an effort that hockey is for everyone that, um, you know, that you see a lot more um, women employed in high level positions in the NHL. Um, you know, there's more, there's more focus on grassroots programs that are, you know, introducing hockey to, um, you know, first time Canadians or Americans and um, reaching out to First Nations, um, you know, parts of parts of the world and, and trying to get more people involved and more people really in love with the game. It's not to say that everybody's going to make the NHL, but that's not the dream. The dream is that everyone will love the NHL. And I think um, as we start to navigate that territory, you know, women's sports is inherently going to fall into into that kind of that push to to generate more viewership and more, um, you know, belief in in the hockey world. Well, I have like ten questions that emerged out of that, <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll try to try to figure out where to go with that. Uh, but so, because I mean, one thing I wanted to just say before I get to what I really want to ask you is. I think you did. You hit on the thing, like if you go on Twitter, for instance, and you see women's sports come up ever, uh, there's going to be like 15,000 reply guys coming mm -hmm. off and saying like, well, the problem, just what you said. Well, the problem is, of course, that no one wants to watch women's sports and therefore there's no market for it and therefore they can't earn any money and therefore it's not viable. So, yeah. you know, end of story, <laughs> women's sports will never be viable. And of course, what that completely ignores and what has been systematically debunked by anyone who has, does actual academic work in this area is the fact that men's sports were subsidized for decades. For decades. Like there was no, in fact, if you go and watch The Last Dance right now um, yes. <laughs> on uh, ESPN, watch those NBA stadiums in the yeah. 80s, right? The NBA, this like gold standard of American sports right now. I'm sorry, but those stadiums were half full at best for the mediocre teams, like the mediocre Bulls in Chicago, a huge city, right? And even so, but before Jordan, obviously I'm not talking about the Jordan years, I'm talking about before Jordan, right? Those stadiums were not full. Um, so I think that that's something that like no one wants to acknowledge, but we're willing to put a fortune into the XFL, for instance, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which is gone already, by the way. So long XFL. But like if you, if you plug, logged on to ESPN for uh, many of the weekends 
uh, I don't even remember when exactly it was, but a few a couple months ago, right? The whole t- ESPN ticker was just XFL scores. And mm-hmm. People were like, what, what is this? I don't even know what I'm looking at. And I could, certainly couldn't care less, but we were, we were bludgeoned with it, right? Because there's always this attempt now to market men's sports and just assume that there is a market for those sports. And we never see the equivalent when it comes to women's sports. And this is not, this is not my argument. I just want to be clear, you know, like a myriad people are making these claims. Um, but I just want to kind of make that point because I, I don't want any of our listeners to sort of think that that, are, and I'm not saying that you were saying that, but I'm saying that that's sort of the pervasive attitude. Like there's no market for women's sports and that's bullshit. Right. <laughs> but the, yeah, exactly. But the thing I actually want to get into with you um, now is the fandom piece, because that's also connected to the market. And for mm-hmm. me, um, in my work, I'm a, a particularly harsh critic of sort of men's hockey. What I looked at in my, the book I wrote, my dissertation research was on the sacrifice men's hockey players were making physically and emotionally and what that did for fans. And for me, the kind of argument I was um, trying to advance there was essentially that like the fans extracted meaning and value because the players gave something of themselves. And there was that, that a kind of alienated relationship between the two because the players really felt like the fans didn't get what they were going through, right? They were doing this to a certain extent for the fans and the fans didn't really appreciate what was happening. Um, and so it was kind of like a, a, a troubled dynamic or relationship between those two parties. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, I'm also thinking about the fact, like, this is something that I, I spent a lot of time pondering, that the NBA, when they were locked out years ago, you know, the, these players put on, they, they did this kind of barnstorming tour that was like what you're doing, right? Like, they put on their own games. And people like Kevin Durant were saying, these are the best experiences of my life, right? Playing in front of fans when I, we control what's happening, right? Like, it's not this commodity spectacle that the owners are in charge of. It was a different experience. So my question is kind of twofold, I guess. Part of it is, in general, do you think that the dynamic between fans and players in uh, women's hockey, women's sports even, maybe more generally, might be somewhat different than what I described in men's sports? One. And then two, do you feel like the for the game experience specifically has changed those dynamics for you? Yeah. So, I mean, amazing question. Amazing insight into... A, a dynamic that we don't we don't talk about in women's sports because of, of course they don't have any fans. <laughs> I mean, I'm being sarcastic there, but so to, to your first point, um, you know, the relationship between the player, the the women's hockey player and the fan, is um, like its its strengths are its weaknesses, and what I mean by that is that we are so available to our fans. Um, I've been invited to an eight-year-old's birthday party and I've gone because, you know, this is a kid who, um, whether they were a fan who sat behind my net at every game or a kid that I coached, um, their parents asked me and they said, you know, you've had such a huge impact on her and will you come to her birthday party and play road hockey with her friends? Yes, I will, because I believe in giving back to the community and I see myself in that young girl and I know the experiences I had meeting my heroes when I was a, a you know, a young girl um, growing up playing hockey. The problem with that is that Sidney Crosby is not going to a kid's hockey game. And, um, you know, as, as female athletes, we often get asked to do favors and favors are one thing. And, and I'm not saying that the athletes can't do favors because obviously, you know, inherent in our nature is to, to give back. But, um, you know, fans or 
fans or, or parents of fans, um, you know, requesting that we come on the ice with their kids to practice. Like you just wouldn't, you, you don't get a professional athlete out to your practice for free. And I think that's part of the problem is that we, we feel such a sense of pride that we are able to connect with the fans on that level. Um, at the same time, it's somewhat problematic because to what you were saying earlier, do they see us like regular people? I think to an extent they do. And that's, you know, we're not, we're not superheroes by any means, but part of that separation is what creates that illusion of the pro athlete. Um, I think when we get to the dream gap, I saw a real, like, I just got goosebumps when I said it, I saw a really inspirational twist to what our fans really believe in. And I think at the end of the dream gap tour, um, at, at the end of each game, both teams would stand across center ice and, and kind of salute the fans. And everybody stood up. And it wasn't, you know, these people, they weren't cheering for a team because um, their favorite player was on it or because they grew up in Toronto or they grew up in Montreal. You had diehard Montreal fans who in women's hockey are just as diehard as they are in men's hockey standing next to diehard Toronto fans. and and just like really embracing the moment and understanding that their, their ticket is making a difference in the future of the game. And I think at the end of the day, that's where, you know, we are so fortunate. Women's hockey fans are very, very passionate people. Um, you can see that all over Twitter if you'd like, but um, they're there to support us. And I think when they, when they hear our stories about what our experience as pro athletes has been like, I think it's a eye opening and B they're there to support it. I think they want to see that, that division almost and, and really putting female athletes, you know, on, on a pedestal. I mean, that's, that's part of pro sports is, is getting the notoriety. Um, the fact I, I I've said this before, the fact that Mary Philippe Poulin can walk into, um, you know, any average rank in Toronto and, nobody you know stops her for an autograph is like astonishing she's she's our golden girl she's scored the biggest goals at, at the olympics in history and you know some would compare to Sidney crosby and i think it's just the recognition that um certainly women's hockey fans have but i think we can reach a broader audience in terms of of you know inspiring people not just inspiring young girls but inspiring people um, by what we're doing by by our work and um, certainly some of those stories are by our work as you know medical professionals i mean you see Haley wickenheiser out um you know she's a doctor now and she's helping with, at the forefront of covid and i mean that's an olympic athlete that that was she's arguably you know one of the most decorated one of the most um you know recognized female hockey players in the world now she's a doctor trying to get PPE to our frontline workers. Like that's, that's mind blowing. If, if there was an NHL player did, that did that, it would be, I mean, not that it's not already, you know, everywhere because it, it is and it should be, but these are the kinds of people that, that women's hockey has. And I think that, you know, if you're looking for a role model, um, you know, women's hockey, the PWHPA, we've got 150 of them. Even just listening to um, your experiences and like the the, the sort of selfless um, approach that that many people take to um, to the game and to to their time is is fascinating because you're I think you're 
you speaking about this kind of like hidden professional men's sport player like they're kind of hidden from society that they don't really um participate in these things but you do all this like extra labor that is also unpaid um and it's also probably emotionally draining and adds to a lot of um extra work for all of you so it it, it sounds like um you're as as a whole these people are like incredible people and you can see that i think uh, you see it with a, a variety of people you mentioned Haley wickenheiser is one of them like doing so much work for the community um but i want to kind of pivot just a little bit because you mentioned that you um are a sociologist or that that you uh, studied sociology and i'm a professor of sociology myself um so i kind of wanted to ask you specifically about that i know you graduated from Wilfrid Laurier um, with a, with an honors BA in sociology. Um, I was curious if, if your training in sociology has informed your approach to your career um, in professional hockey and more importantly, I think, your approach to labor advocacy. Yeah, I think uh, definitely. Um, you know, it was it was a little little while ago for me now. I graduated in uh, 2010. Um, but I mean, part of what drew me into sociology was was understanding you know, societies and, and how we work and how we evolve. And, um, I think the first thing that I recognized in myself and my studies was obviously my privilege. Um, you know, I, I grew up white in a, you know, middle-class family with my parents, you know, you know, married and I had every opportunity in the world to play hockey, which in and of itself, you know, is a privilege. And I think that as I grew, um, not only as an athlete, but in, in my career outside of sport, um, as a female, I, I just kind of realized that, um, the, the world of hockey is, is very, um, white male and, um, it has been obviously for a long time, but that you don't say <laughs> groundbreaking news here, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> but that, you know, if I'm given a, a little bit of opportunity to, grow the game and and to create inclusivity um that that is also a privilege and that you know it's not one that i take lightly and i'm always learning i mean i'm still i'm still learning i'm by no means you know an expert sociologist i would never claim that i think some of my professors would beg to differ that i'm, <laughs> I'm even you know mediocre but um it does it, it opens your eyes to your privilege and i think that's um, where we're seeing women's hockey go now is is a very exciting time. And and um, I, I think the biggest thing for us is to not forget our history because our history is very close behind us, um, but but people are generally quick to forget. And as you were saying about the, the Michael Jordan documentary, uh, you know, that was in the 80s. That's not that long ago, but we've we've already forgotten that, you know, the NBA struggled like that. So I think it's... Uh, you know, remembering where you come from and, and striving for more and for more people. Yeah. Wow. That's terrific. I mean, you've been, you've been giving me chills throughout. You said that you were getting chills and, and I was getting chills too, when you were describing um, the experiences you had on the Dream Gap tour and, and Haley Wickenheiser um, and everything else. And by the way, like what for, for maybe for some of our international listeners who don't know, like Haley Wickenheiser is an all time great Canadian athlete, period. And even in a society that, um, diminishes women's sports, right? And does not give them the credit they deserve. I mean, that's still understood widely. So I think just so for folks who don't have that context. Um, okay, so I got a little rant here about something else Canadian. 
and uh, it's related to something that you've said. So I'm going to come around to what you said on it. But but first, I just want to give uh, some of our folks in the United States, maybe the UK, other places in the world, not Canada, uh, a window into a, a current conversation in uh, Canadian politics and political economy right now, which has to do with a certain league known as the CFL or Canadian Football League. Now, the Canadian Football League has asked the government of Canada for a $150 million bailout as a consequence of, that's right, exactly, as a consequence of the pandemic. Now, you have commented on this, Liz, and so I, I want to get to you, and I'm going to actually read a quote that you gave, uh, and then I'd love to hear you elaborate. No, no, it's a great quote. That's why I pulled it out. Um, but I, I want to rant just for a second, even before we get to yours. I had, I had a just a different take that doesn't contradict yours, just a, a separate take I want to rant about, which is that, um, folks, we can't play football anymore. Okay, that's my starting point. So the idea of bailing out an industry that is predicated on the sacrifice of human beings for monetary gain of an ownership class for the pleasure of fans, it's got to stop. We can't be bailing out an industry that is predicated on human sacrifice. Now, I get that there are workers who have invested years of their lives and have invested their own bodies already up to the point that they have become incredibly skilled workers in the field of football. And those workers, if they lose their jobs in the CFL, will suffer. And it would be absolutely remiss for me to then just say, you know, who cares? Gives a shit. Let's give them a $150 million bailout. And let's put that money in the hands of those current CFL players as a buyout to never have to play the CFL anymore. And let's put it in the hands of former CFL players who are suffering the consequences. Okay, if we're going to bail out that league for $150 million, I don't want to see a penny in the pocket of the owners who have, who have benefited from blood sport. Liz, you had a different take on it, which I think is equally valid. You, here's what you said. You said, quote, we, speaking of women's hockey players, we are asking for peanuts compared to a $150 million ask. The, this is a CBC story. Knox told the Canadian press on Thursday. Quote, when the CWHL was folding, we were talking in the hundreds of thousands of dollars to get us in the clear so the league didn't have to fold. We're talking two or three CFL salaries. That would have made the difference of us literally surviving or not. Can you elaborate a little bit on those views? Because I think that's a hell of a point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, I'll, I'll be the first to admit that I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure where this money is coming from. I'm not sure where the ask is from. I'm not sure if it's in, you know, Canada sport or if it's in corporation or I, I, you know, I don't, the level of governance that, that these conversations are happening at, I don't know. What I do know is the optics of it. Right. And that was my point was that, um, the COVID situation, we're in a global pandemic, you know, the CFL as a corporation did not plan for this. Nobody planned for this. There are tons of companies that are suffering lots of families that are suffering. And of course, at the forefront of, of my mind is, yes, whatever keeps the most Canadians healthy, safe, um, you know, and, and a roof over their head and food on their table. That's, that's the most important thing by far. Let me be clear about that. Going back to the optics of it, though, you know, this, the CWHL is home to the best Canadian female hockey players in the world. I mean, they're Canadian, so they're the best in the world. 
we're also home to over half of the American national team. So, you know, we have the best players in the world. This is, this is the pinnacle of our sport. And um, again, I wasn't in the higher level conversations of when the CWHL was folding, but I do know that there were some asks, um, you know, from the government that were not obviously received. And as a result, we liquidated all of our assets. We liquidated our trophies that players worked years for. We liquidated, um, you know, our jerseys that had been hung up in our stalls. And, and players had no, we had, we had no choice in this. You know, this is, this was the, the legality of us finally shutting our doors was that everything must go. So, yeah, when I see the number and I see the heading, $150 million, I mean, I'm, I, I'm kind of racking my brain, right? Like, we're asking for a couple hundred thousand. They're asking for $150 million. Again, I'm not naive. I understand, you know, the magnitude of how COVID is affecting um, major sports leagues like the CFL. And I'm well aware of the revenue that they generate and how many you know, hundreds of thousands of people they employ, athletes, as well as, um, you know, staff personnel. But the number throws me off a little bit. Yeah, the, the number is absolutely huge. I, I think I'm, I might even have a different take than than kind of both of you on this. I, I just don't think that any government should ever be bailing out any sporting organization or anything like that, just simply because of years and years and years of making massive amounts of revenue and not giving it back to other people, but simply keeping it for themselves. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested. Um, maybe if I could ask just a, a, a brief follow-up. Um, if you have spoken with colleagues um, in the association or around women's hockey about the CFL and about this 150 million and and if so what are what are other people talking yeah, about yeah you know what? I actually was just on a call today with uh, Jacqueline Dory who's with CBC and Sammy Joe Small um, and we did a little uh, you know zoom chat about kind of the ins and outs and what our opinions are of it and uh, I mean Sammy Joe's very you know well versed in the the business side of it and she was a founding member of the CWHL so she understands the kind of streams of of um of how to get that sort of or any funding that sort of funding perhaps from the government um we were uh, declared as an amateur organization at the time so it was a little bit different for us um you know we're not a major uh corporation like the cfl um and it was very honestly it was very educating um it, i think she made some great points i think um my takeaway from it was uh, especially through this covid pandemic um, we're really in a very vulnerable point right now in terms of our Canadian identity and not to get too political here, obviously, but, um, always get political, please get yeah, political, or not, right? <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the headings of, of recent as, uh, of course, Trudeau's gun band. And so it's, we're in a point now where we're basically being stripped of the things that we know as individuals, as our, our daily identity, going to work, um, you know, having our sports having music and, and the arts and, um, you know, and those are things that we also don't talk about how the, how the arts have really, you know, kept society afloat through all this, but um, we're very susceptible right now. We're very susceptible to um, reconfiguring or, or finding ourselves as, um, as our national identity. 
And I think that where we put our money is going to be a big influencer of that. Um, again, the CFL, Canadian Football League, that is intrinsically Canadian. Um, you know, it's different than the NFL. And um, I, I would I would have loved to seen um, women's hockey, women's sport in general, um, you know, kind of woven into those fabrics as well and, and have have an importance placed on our identity as Canadians being, you know, the hockey lovers that we are and inclusive of women and creating equal opportunity. So I think it's, it's a very interesting time. And as the pandemic kind of, you know, rolls out and eventually lifts whenever that will, whenever that will be, um, we're all in a state of, of figuring out who we are and, and who we are as a country. Yeah, that's a magnificent point. Um, I, I have long felt, and I, I'm not alone in this, but uh, uh, that we need to scrutinize hockey, particularly as a cultural form in Canada, precisely because of how central it is to the nation's identity, as you're laying out. And I think that what you're getting at is that if Canada, and we have the so-called feminist prime minister, Justin Trudeau, if Canada is a supposedly feminist nation, then we need to take women's hockey seriously. We have this national pastime where um, Canadian identity plays out on the screens in front of us. It plays out on rinks around the country. Uh, we, have, we are increasingly seeing, as we should, the tensions around race, which you got at earlier, right? The fact that this is a deeply white game and a fundamentally racist game. And then that says something profound about the fact that Canada claims to be a multicultural, diverse society, and yet in some of its most prized sites and cultural moments, right, its whiteness returns to the fore. I think that that's something we always have to pay attention to in the context of hockey in Canada. Um, but I think that the gender piece is equally central here. If Canada prides itself on hockey and Canada prides itself on gender equity, then women's hockey has to matter in Canada, and people have to put their money where their mouths are when it comes to mattering. So with that said, I got to say, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is that this was an absolutely wonderful interview, and I love talking to you. Oh, the bad news really is, fun, guys. I really appreciate it. The bad news is it's going to be really tough for any other athlete that comes on our show. Um, so we may have to hide this interview away if we don't hear it. <laughs> Set the bar real high. <laughs> thank you oh. so much, Liz. No, guys, honestly, thank you so much. And thank you so much for putting your time and effort into you know, not only telling our stories, but adding the academic side to it, because, um, you know, the one thing that we are fortunate as female athletes is that we're all, you know, by and large, strong thinkers. And we, we love to, you know, be critical and interrogate ideas. And, um, you know, I think that the more we talk about it, the more we spread this kind of this awareness and our narrative, um, you know, we have, we have big things to achieve.